Welcome back, everyone, to Story Matters. My name is Nick Alamonos, and as you'll soon learn, I am the author of the Anya series. So today I'd like to do something a little different. I'd like to talk about my book, Ages of Anya, which is the first in the Anya series. So the history of Ages of Anya, how I came about this series, is very long and convoluted. The book kind of came about by happy accident. So the first thing you need to know about me is that I am a huge, huge fan of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. This is the thing that really introduced me at a young age to the fantasy genre. I remember I was six years old when I went into a toy store in the mall with my parents. And I saw probably the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my life. And it was a He-Man action figure. I loved the detail on the figure because in those days we really didn't have very good action figures. I mean, we had like Superman toys that looked like dolls and with like fluffy clothing. And this one looked totally different. He had a sword you could put in his hand and a shield and you could switch the sword out with an ax and he had this uh, harness that he could wear. I mean, it was just the coolest thing. But what really set me, I think, on the road to becoming a fantasy author was the little comic in the back. The early mini comics were beautifully, beautifully illustrated. They were not like the comics that came out later. The very first comics were very inspired by Frank Frazetta and Boris Vallejo. And of course, I wasn't familiar with any kind of fantasy at that age, right? I didn't know who Conan was. I didn't know who Frank Frazetta was. You know, He-Man was really this just this hodgepodge of earlier fantasy tropes and cliches that was just kind of cobbled together. But for me, it was all new. And so I remember reading that mini-comic just over and over and over again. I, I loved it. It just really set my imagination ablaze. What I remember distinctly about that comic was that there was really no distinction between fantasy and science fiction. And I think it blended them together almost better than anything I've ever seen, oddly enough. I've never quite seen a movie or read a book that does such a good job of merging these two genres. So I think the secret is that the characters that are in the fantasy world, they don't know what technology is. So when He-Man first encounters the Wind Raider, which is basically a, a plane, he is mystified. And he, to him, it's magic. It's like, what is this? And there's a character named Man-at-Arms who explains to him, yes, with this metal bird, we will be able to soar into the sky. And for He-Man, it's like, wow, like I can, I can fly with this thing? Now, this is very different than the TV show that came after it. I think the TV show didn't do as good of a job because you have this literal army of tanks and spaceships and laser guns. And at the same time, you have He-Man running around with a sword riding on top of a giant tiger. But in the comic, technology was rare and it was mysterious. And eventually that would turn into the world of Anya. So when I discovered the internet, this was during the very primitive 
days of the internet. This is the early 90s when having a website was very difficult, right? I mean, if I had something like Wix or Squarespace or, or even WordPress back then, it would have made my life so much easier, a thousand times easier. Making a website back in the early 90s was a huge hassle. But I did make a website because I wanted to share my early stories. So I made something called Nick's Story Page. And I put a lot of my stories on there, including a novel that I'd written in high school called The Nomad. But the problem is, is that nobody knew who I was and nobody knew what The Nomad was. And what I realized is that I needed to write something that people already knew what it was so they could look it up and find my, my work. Naturally, I would write about He-Man because there was this underground movement of people that still loved He-Man, loved the show, still collected the toys. And given the nature of the internet in those days, I didn't even know that other people like me existed. Like I thought I was the one crazy guy who had a bunch of action figures in his bedroom. I didn't know that there was a lot of people who were even more fanatical. And so my stories really appealed to them. And these stories were shared through email because this is before forums and before social media, really. So this is the beginnings of fan fiction. And again, I didn't do this because I didn't have my own original ideas. I did this because this was the only way to connect to readers because they weren't going to connect to me. And so for a couple of years, I just wrote fan fiction. And, and I enjoyed it because I loved He-Man. But I always tried to make it a little more serious, a little more dramatic, I tried to age up the stories and make it more for like a mature audience. And so I did write about sex and I did write about violence. It was more like if George R. Martin had decided to take over the Masters of the Universe franchise, I think you would get something like the stories that I was writing. And But I got a lot of fans. I got a lot of fans because they were also older and they wanted to see a more mature take on, on He-Man. Finally... I thought to myself, is I'd like to take my fans who are reading my, my He-Man fiction, and I'd like to gradually introduce them to my own ideas. I said, I'm going to create a fan fiction that's going to be very loosely connected to He-Man. What I was going to do is I was going to write a series of stories that took place 500 years before the events in the show and in the comic. So that way... I really wouldn't need to deal with any copyright issues, right? I'm going to make all new characters and things are going to be very different. Of course, I called the planet Eternia and I called the main character He-Man because I had this idea that Prince Adam was not the first He-Man, that there had been other He-Mans in the past. And what's interesting is that I came up with this idea long before Mattel did. In 2002, Mattel tried to revive the franchise. And what they did is they introduced this idea of King Grayskull, who was the original He-Man. But I already had this idea that there had been He-Mans before. And the other thing that I borrowed was certain races. And the races that I borrowed were races that Masters of the Universe had essentially borrowed themselves. So for example, I put people in my book, which are called Merquid, because there are mer people in, in Eternia. Mer people were not invented by Mattel. They just borrowed this idea 
from a lot of other fantasy stories. So they couldn't lay claim to a aquatic-like, you know, humanoid creature any more than Tolkien can say he owns the concept of elves and dwarves and goblins. We've seen Merman in Creature from the Black Lagoon is probably one of the earliest versions of, of Merman. I also uh, borrowed the idea of beast men, which are basically just intelligent, gorilla-like men. And again, Mattel can't say they have the rights to this because that's where we get Bigfoot from. That's where we get the Yeti from. We've seen uh, creatures like that in, in all kinds of stories. And then the third race that I borrowed was the avians, which were a race of bird people. And again, we see bird people in Zelda. We see bird people in Flash Gordon. So they can't say, well, we own the rights to bird people. And so those are the races that I picked really because I wanted to pay an homage to the thing that I grew up loving. And that's how I really conceived of Enya. But the very first story that I wrote was called City by the Sea. And this was a short story that was inspired by another story by H.P. Lovecraft. And that story was called The Doom That Came to Sarnath. And in my story, I even called the city Sarnath. Or of course, I had planned to change all these names. So the idea was, what if a prehistoric He-Man was to be in Sarnath when these aquatic creatures invaded? And if you're familiar with the doom that came to Sarnath, and I highly recommend you go read it if you haven't, there's a race of, of creatures that Lovecraft introduces called the Deep Ones. And these Deep Ones, again, are very similar to Merman from He-Man. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if a character, uh, a He-Man-like character, was fighting to defend the city when the Mermen attacked? And the other character I introduced was a character named Thalana. And Thalana was based on Tila. You know, she had kind of reddish-brown hair, a little bit of a darker skin, and she was just very kind of strong-willed, feisty warrior woman. Tila was my introduction to the female warrior, and so that's where Thalana came from. So this was my very first annual-related story. And even though I called the character He-Man, because I was trying to get those He-Man fans to read the story, he wasn't Adam He-Man, he was Xander He-Man the original He-Man. Of course, my plan was that I was going to publish the book and I was just going to change all the names and then there would be nothing to connect the story to Masters of the Universe. So I wrote two more short stories following that. The Serpent's Eye, which had to do with Snake Men, because again, there are Snake Men and He-Man, but we see Snake Men in Dungeons and Dragons and in movies and in so many other media. And the third story was called Flesh and Steel. And a little secret about me is in the early days of my writing, I used to base a lot of my stories, a lot of my inspiration on toys. And I know that sounds weird, but the reason I did that is because that's how I played with my toys when I was a kid. I would buy a new action figure and I would try to come up with a story about the new toy that I made. And then I would play out a little episode, a little stop motion story in my imagination based on the new character. And so this kind of mentality stuck with me for a long time. So I bought this toy that was this big, hulking, muscular creature. In fact, the, the toy's name was called Creech. 
and it was based on a comic called Creech. So I was really inspired by this thing. And so I came up with Flesh and Steel. Those three short stories, I decided I was going to weave them together and write my first novel. And if I do have some regrets about my first novel, is that it does have a little bit of an episodic nature, even though I tried as much as I could to link the stories together, it is a little bit like an anthology series. I think in retrospect, I realized that I could have just released an anthology series. Here's three short stories that take place in the same world with the same characters. I could have done that, but I was really trying hard to make it one story. Now, to make things even more interesting and crazy, I'm also a nudist. And this was something that I was always kind of on the fence about letting people know this because I know that there's a lot of stigma and a lot of preconceived notions about nudism. And I really didn't want that to harm my writing career. But one thing that I was often told in school was that I should express myself. And what a good writer does is he shares his unique perspective about the world. That's what makes a good artist. And the other thing that I've been taught is that stories need to be original. There needs to be something unique and different. And I thought nudism is something that we really don't see a lot of in fiction. We do see a lot of sexualized nudity. That's very, very common. But we don't see a lot of innocent nudity. Now, there is innocent nudity that you can see on display in museums all over Europe. If you go to the Louvre in Paris, for instance, you will see lots and lots of paintings and statues, hundreds and thousands of them, of a naked Hercules, a naked Theseus, a naked Perseus, a naked Achilles, all the Greek heroes are depicted naked, even a lot of biblical heroes like David. So this idea of heroes being naked was almost a universal thing back during the Renaissance and classical period. Then that kind of died off. It kind of just became something that changed over time, I think, due to Christianity basically considered nudity as being shameful and sexual. Edgar Rice Burroughs, who was writing right at the turn of the, the 19th century, he introduced us to Tarzan, who is naked through much of the book. And in addition to that, we have John Carter of Mars, who is naked through most of the book A Princess of Mars, as is Deja Torres. She's completely naked in the book, and it's just a casual thing. And so, of course, I'm thinking, I'm going to take my, my love of Masters of the Universe and combine it with my growing up nudist, and that's where Xander and Thalana were born. And I will admit that I hesitated so much about this to the point that the earlier versions of the story, the fan fiction versions of the story, they were not naked. Xander actually would wear a loincloth and Thalala was wearing like a little fur bikini. But ultimately I realized and said, why? You know, you know, why should these characters be wearing loincloths when this is not my experience? My experience, you know, hiking naked through the woods 
is that it's it's not necessary to wear a loincloth. It's just something that is impressed upon us by modern culture and modern biases, American biases. But as a Greek person of Greek descent, having grown up with Greek mythology and, and again, you know, a lot of nudity, I didn't see a reason why my characters should be wearing clothes. And so this is how I wrote them when I went to release the first version of the book, which was called The Dark Age of Enya. And the problem was that a lot of people in the He-Man community, there was a, a website called He-Man.org. This is around like 96, 97. He-Man.org basically took over and dominated the community. And the problem with that is that the community became very homogenized and there became censorship. Whereas in the past, I could write whatever I wanted to and there was no one to tell me, you can't write that stuff. I was writing stories where there was a lot of sex in it, like Tila having sex and Shira having sex. And now these uh, website owners that were saying, no, you can't write stories like this. And so when I started advertising my you know, naked He-Man stories, of course, this was seen as trolling. This, you know, no one really took it seriously. No one really understood where I was coming from. They just thought I was just trying to be obscene. And so I was actually banned from the website. I was kicked out and I wasn't allowed to promote my stories there or anything. Now, many years later, probably more than 10 years later, the owner of He-Man.org actually stumbled upon my blog and he read my story. I, I wrote a story about this, about how I was banned from the He-Man community. And he actually apologized to me. I think he realized that I was serious and about the nudity wasn't meant to be some insulting thing. And he actually invited me back. At one point I was thinking, maybe somebody might read this and think, oh yeah, this might be an early version of He-Man. But it was so different by that point. I had made so many changes to it that I realized, yeah, this really has nothing to do with He-Man. It had become its own thing. And the only remnants were the races that were the same. And Xander, the character who has blonde hair and blue eyes, because He-Man has blonde hair and blue eyes, and, and he's muscular, and he has a, a giant two-handed sword that has a skull on it. And the skull is supposed to look like the skull face on Castle Grayskull. So that's another little uh, Easter egg there if you're a He-Man fan. And then there's the character of Thalana, who her name is a distortion of Tila. So I just took Tila and I added an H and she became Thila. And then I added an N and it became Thalana. So I released The Dark Age of Enya and the book, I was really hoping at the time, I just assumed that I was brilliant because I had so many fans. And so I thought, man, I'm not going to have any difficulty getting my book published. Well, I did. I had a, a lot of hard time getting my book published because I realized that there's a big difference between getting in the bookstore and appealing to people online who are just craving more He-Man stories. It was a very different audience. And so what I had to do is I had to kind of go back to the drawing board. And I spent nine years rewriting The Dark Age of Anya and turning it into Ages of Anya. And the reason it took me nine years is because I had just gotten married. I just had a new baby. And I just started a job. I took over my parents' restaurant 
which was a huge responsibility. So between the new wife, new mortgage, new job, and a new baby, it was impossible for me to find time to write. And I also had to overcome a lot of demons of doubt because I, I really was discouraged after my first book attempt failed. But I really loved the characters of Xander and Thalana. I still love those characters. And I think Thalana is probably the character that I'm most proud of because she just combines so many things that are inspirations for me. I like to think of Ages of Enya as the foundational myth of the Enya universe. So all the other books I've written so far, two of them, The Princess of Enya and The Feral Girl, and another book I'm writing now called The Magic of Enya, all those books are spinoffs from Ages of Enya. So Ages of Enya is like the historical document where all the other books I'm going to write are going to refer back to, because a lot of major historical things happen in this book. Uh, so now what I'd like to do is I would like to read to you the opening prologue to Ages of Enya, and hopefully you'll find it uh, enjoyable. Knowledge not tempered by wisdom sows destruction. That is a quote by Cages. There is a land called Ilmarinen between the light and the dark hemispheres, named after the flower of orange and violet. In Ilmarinen, it is said, there is no poverty or war. Grasses brush softly so that children might chase through fields unblemished and aeons weathered boulders make beds for lovers and poets and stargazers. There the monastery of Alashia stands, ancient beyond memory, repository of forbidden knowledge. Of all Aeneas peoples, only the Ilmar remember the age before the greater moon, when we fail to save the world from cataclysm. In memory of song, they remember us, our hubris, and our wisdom. From the Ages of Anya, Volume 2, as recorded by Eldon. The blood rushing to her head made her skull ache. She could feel the throb of her heart flowing through her limbs, bringing spasms of pain to her ribcage. Dizzy with dread, she glanced back and saw it not far now, a blur of crimson. The half-man was still following. Dapples of sunlight percolated from the treetops. The leaves were wet and slick with dew and stuck to her soles. Soft dirt came up between her toes, slowing, weakening her grip on the earth. Arrows jostled in her quiver, eager to fly in every direction. A bow of twine and oak smacked her backside at every rock and ravine, impeding her passage. Without slowing pace, she fumbled at the harness between her breasts, discarding the bundle of arrows and the bow, which followed in the dirt. She kept on free of everything but muscle and skin, a true Ilmar and born of nature, her auburn braid swaying like a banner caught in a storm. She could hear the arrows snapping like twigs with heavy inhuman footfalls and knew the half-man was close behind. Strengthened by fear, she kept momentum as brambles reached for her ankles and river rocks cut into her soles. She would never tire or waver, after all, she was not like other humans. Her sense of touch was as keen as her vision. 
She could feel the goddess everywhere, in the rain, in the wind, as part of the wood and part of her. But she was far from the wood she knew. An immense camphor tree stood in a depression of leaves like a parent over the forest. Her fingers and toes were still covered in sap from sleeping in the branches. The stickiness helped her dig into the brittle bark, scurry up the sheer trunk with little effort. She came up through the foliage into the open sky where she squatted along a bed of swaying twigs. Certain the half-man could not follow, she placed a hand to her breast, feeling her heart grow calm, her breathing settle into rhythm. No more running. She had lost them in the high places like so many other predators that had stalked her in the past. Shades of green stretched below, split by a deep waterfall-studded gorge which fed into the azure ribbon that was the Potamus River. The river spilled into the turquoise moon that filled the horizon. The smaller moon swam like a purple fish across the face of the greater, marking the passings till nightfall. In quiet moments when she was in hiding, she doted on the ilm her father had given her, now lost in the quiver with her arrows. The scent of the flower conjured memories of home, and she would never think to eat it or make it into a tea unless gravely injured. Jagged rocks punished her souls often when she neglected to watch where she was running, and the branches of some trees left scrape marks across her shoulders and forearms and sometimes her cheeks. But these were mild discomforts she learned to ignore and did not warrant use of the elm's healing properties. When she was confident that the half-man was gone, she would go down and look for the flower, and when she had it in her palm again, she would try and recall the orange and purple that colored the hills of her homeland. How many eclipses had come and gone since leaving home? For cycles, she followed the Potamus, maintaining a southerly course, keeping the greater moon to the, her left. The river served as a guide on her journey, but also a source for drink and bathing. When the waterway dipped through barren valleys, her sustenance consisted of grubs and beetles, but in the wood she drank dew from leaves and relied on her marksmanship to sate her hunger. Despite their efforts, her parents could not have prepared her for the vast, nameless stretches of Anya. They could not have known of the unfamiliar and ever-changing flora, of the fruits their daughter could only guess the relative safety of, fruit which could either soothe the hollowness in her belly or leave her aching and vomiting. The farther from home, the harsher the touch of the world. Days were scorching, and nights made her shudder. Dragon mosquitoes found her blood sweet as she slept in the trees, and even the flowers had thorns. But she refused to mask her body in the protective covering her mother had given her. Even the occasional thorn was preferable to the constant grating, the heaviness and sultriness and numbness brought on by clothing. The outside world was unlike Ilmarinen, but every new sensation, even the painful ones, heightened her awareness of life, of the goddess that resided in all things. The darkness that came with the fully eclipsed sun, the depth of night, seemed to belong to other gods. In Omarinen, she had lain down on the roof of her father's house under a universe of twinkling fires, her eleven siblings slumbering below before a warm hearth. But here, lonesome but for the surrounding trees, she shut her eyes and willed sleep to come, fitfully separating the harmless noises from invisible things that hunted in the dark. Leaves whispered and branches crackled, rousing her from her thoughts. Her foundation began to sway violently, threatening to fling her hundreds of feet to the ground. Something was making its way up towards her. As it burst through the foliage, she caught a glimpse of howling teeth and fur 
like the color of blood. She scurried away like a four-legged animal without realizing that she was in the adjoining tree. He was in the other, growling in his guttural language, shaking the bone talisman in his fist. Careful to watch his footing, he moved uneasily across the makeshift bridge of touching branches. She reached for her bow only to realize she'd thrown it away. The limbs of the trees groaned in protest as she pulled herself to the twig-like fringes of the camper's height. The wind gushed fiercely about her, testing her balance. Being twice her size, she was certain that the half-man could not follow, that the branches would snap under his weight. But he could still reach. She could feel him clawing her heels, drawing blood with his nails. She navigated through the maze of branches, finally evading him and locating a way in which she could move down and backwards, blindly reaching for anything to hold on to, clutching at twigs no thicker than her fingers. When she could no longer see his red hide, she allowed herself a moment to breathe. And then the half-man dropped from above. She slinked away again, her feet kicking empty air, and suddenly her stomach lurched into her ribcage as the sound of splintering timber rounded in her ears. She broke through the branches as she fell. The ground was strewn with leaves, but hit harder than dirt. Lifting herself carefully, she tested her body for pain, for broken bones, and was off again, her feet slopping against a flat, unyielding surface. In a blur of stone and iron, she could feel the strangeness of her surroundings, the runes etched into the floor, the obelisks and massive rings, tall as trees, teasing her curiosity as she gasped for air. Vague human shapes towered over her, faceless giants lining the path. Golems, her people called the statues. They were everywhere, even in the Marin, and masquerading as boulders. But she never seen so many standing upright like sentinels. The place was old beyond memory, a great city from aeons ago, from before the greater moon. Every stone in every courtyard echoed with the memories of the dead. But the forest was reclaiming it. Grasses sprouted between tiles, roots cut through walls without doors or rooftops. Yet she had no time to wonder at it all. She could not hope to lose the half-man here in the open. Turning toward a broken archway beyond the watchful faces of stone, she flew deep into the thick of the wood, hoping to be concealed by the fan-shaped leaves. She moved with the grace of a hunted treer, navigating streams and slopes and thickets as though she had run through them a hundred times before. But the half-man was not giving up the chase. Any moment her legs would give out and he would be on top of her. Hiding had failed her and running no longer seemed the wisest course. If there was any chance to fight, it could not happen with her back to it. But there was no hope of turning. Even now, its monster's breathing was raising the hairs of her neck. The shock of its raking claws threw her off balance, and she collapsed hard, repeatedly punished as she rolled across the uneven volcanic terrain. She could feel the heat of his growl, smell the undigested meat between his oversized molars. The half-man overshadowed her, beating his muscled breast with arms thicker than her waist. But she did not show fear. With equal ferocity, she returned his glare with eyes of green fire giving the monster pause. But her fists would not be enough. She frantically searched her surroundings, looking for anything she could use to do harm. A rock, a branch, anything at all. She was touching it before her eyes could follow. Spreading beneath her feet were hundreds of volcanic shards. Never having worn shoes, her soles were tough as oryx leather, but she could still feel the jagged pieces prickling her instep. She groped for the largest fragment, 
The obsidian edge cut into her palm as she lifted her arm to the moon and down again, the shimmering blade plunging between the half man's eye and nostril. His howl stung her ears, and she stumbled away, mesmerized by the horror of it, by the black glass jutting from the mutilated face. You should be running. Before she could see it happen, his meaty fingers closed about her wrists and yanked hard, snapping her body like a doll. Tendrils of pain shot through her shoulder. She could not hope to wrestle free, even with two good arms. The half-man roared, pounding his chest again. She winced as it flexed for the killing blow. Her final thoughts were of home, of the brothers and sisters she would never see again. But the blow never came. The half-man's grip died away and her arm flopped lifelessly. His ape face, she could now see, was contorted in a mix of rage and confusion. An arrowhead jutted from his throat. She blinked through the pain at the shapes emerging from the haze, hardly recognizing them for what they were. Human bodies were supple and hairy and did not gleam in the sunlight, at least not the kind of human bodies she was familiar with. The rumors appear to be true, Captain Dentis, one of the men said to the other. Half-men, he added, nudging the lifeless mass of fur with his boot. And so close to camp. Aye, said the man on the right, tilting his faceplate open. But what of this one? He fixed his shaggy brows on her astonishment, showing through his age sunken eyes. She felt suddenly very young, lost and vulnerable, her gaze wandering with intense curiosity over the leather and bronze of their armor, over their belts and boots and gloves, as of never having seen clothing before. But outsiders were not entirely unknown to her people. It was what had brought her so far from home. Why? She's bare as a newborn, the older man exclaimed. It's a wood nymph if I ever saw one. Her grace kindles the heart indeed, Torgan, the captain replied. But she's just a girl, a feral child, perhaps, lost to the wood when the Bogrens came to her village. And she's hurt. She felt their stares, and though she could see they were branding her every curve to memory, she did not know to feel shame any more than a fish can know what it means to be wet. She simply stood awaiting her next move, focused on holding herself still as a morning dewdrop, her right arm limp against her side. The man called Captain pulled off his helmet. He had dark eyes and an ebony beard and was pleasing to look at and did not seem capable of hating her, despite her parents' warning. Her instinct was to dash into the wood, but she did not flinch as he unhinged his cloak and stepped closer, wrapping her in it. She tugged at the hem, finding the fabric richer and more finely worked than her mother's tunic. He pulled a jeweled dagger from his belt, the finest blade she had ever seen, and with a single stroke cut a long strip from the edge of his cloak to fasten about her palm, staunching the flow of blood. Do you have a name? My name is Thalana. Can you speak? Yes. Words did not leave her mouth, and she did not know why. She understood most of what was spoken to her. It was a dialect similar to the one used by Aeola, the outsider who taught her the way of the bow, but it had been so long since speaking with anyone. Perhaps she'd forgotten how. Okay, folks, that's all I have for you today. 
I really hope you enjoyed my reading of The Ages of Enya. And I hope that it intrigued you enough that you'll want to go check out the rest of the book, which you can pick up from Amazon, or you can go to my website at nickalamonos.com. And if that's difficult for you to remember, or if you can't figure out how to spell that, I have a new link. It's anya.net, which is A-E-N-Y-A dot net. That'll take you to my author site where you can order Ages of Anya. You can also get the prequel to that, The Feral Girl, which was just released this year. And you can also get The Princess of Anya. So that's it for me. And I hope you share this. And I hope you check us out next time where we will be reviewing some books. That's it for me. Thanks for listening.